Hello, and welcome to Seabird. I am John Herlig. Do you know someone that you think would be a great fit as a guest on Seabird? Drop me a line at john at boatradio.co, boatradio.co. A quick thank you to our sponsor, theboatgalley.com. If life has you dreaming about boats, powerboats, sailboats, catamarans, houseboats, take your first step towards successful boating by signing up for the free and informative weekly newsletter at theboatgalley.com. This week, I'm joined by John Martins. John was a qualified tandem parachute instructor, parachute packer, and cameraman by the age of 20. He performed literally thousands of jumps, but on New Year's Eve of 2012, he met tragedy face-to-face when a hard landing left him an L1 paraplegic. John says that he sees the accident as a tremendous blessing in his life. He turned his attention to sailing, notching accomplishments that seemed to defy his physical limitations. He has, among other things, circumnavigated New Zealand and crossed numerous oceans, including a record-setting solo journey across the Pacific. John joined me from his home in New Zealand to talk about his life, his accomplishments, and his aspirations. So, cue the band. Let's do this. This is Seabird. Stories from remarkable people. I crossed the uh, I crossed the Pacific in 2014, and I did that alone. And and it, a lot of people actually think that I did it because I was after some recognition or uh, status or whatever you, you want to conceive it. But it was mm-hmm. it was actually out of pure necessity. I was attempting to make a documentary in regards to uh, waste. And have you ever sailed into Panama? I have not. I've sailed the Caribbean, but I have not sailed Panama. I've sailed into Haiti, if you want to talk about sailing through floating trash. Yeah, okay, so you you know exactly what I'm talking about. And uh, I I remember the first time I sailed into Panama, and it was 100 miles offshore. There wasn't one point during that passage that I, I would not look around I could definitely pick out a piece of floating plastic mm-hmm. so when I got back to New Zealand I um, something was just ticking in my head and I figured out you know what I'm still young and and I have some money in the bank at the moment so I, I should do something about it but the project I did it was it was it nothing went the way I wanted and and it, <laughs> it's <laughs> kind of like starting a recording for a podcast it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry it, it, I'm gonna interrupt this just to explain yeah. in in 10 seconds or less it just took us 45 minutes to start recording because something on my end keeps screwing up and unfortunately I don't have an IT department to to call and say, can you please come in my office and tell me why I can't hear John from New Zealand? But we got through it and everyone's still smiling ostensibly. Well, I want to talk to you about the purpose of that sale, but I want to start somewhere else. I want to start with what what long haul offshore passage gave you the most sailing gratification? Every single one of them. I see that there's a there are different types of sailors in regards to their generations because when I started sailing I didn't have any I it was just books 
So you'd have you'd really have to use your imagination in regards to what what the sea is going to be like. And once you put yourself out there, I, I used to be a skydiver, mm-hmm. so I see sailing much like skydiving because you're at the door of the airplane and you look outside and you think to yourself, I've done all the checks that were necessary and I'm confident with the parachute and I'm confident with the packing that I've done. And and you just plunge into belief. Mm-hmm. And that's what sailors do as well. They look up to the horizon and they 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 think, well, I took care of my boat and I prepared it. I loaded it up with enough food and I'm I'm ready for it. So then you just you just venture into it. But of course, no you take your leap. Yeah, yeah, and you think you're going to if if you don't set out to the ocean thinking that you're not going to get to the other end, then I think you're into a you're setting yourself to a lot of trouble, but because every every passage there's something hmm. something weird is going to happen, and and it's your resilience that's going to get you to the other, to the other end. And every time you get to the other end is um, very gratifying. I define the word gratefulness um, as a, a dichotomy between a desired state and an undesired state. And once you go out there, the chances that you're going to be very uncomfortable it's it's pretty high. And <laughs> yes, and but it is this benchmark that you do with being uncomfortable and comfortable that really makes grati- gratitude um, uh, real for a person, something that they will remember. And I have a few episodes that uh, that this becomes very uh, uh, very apparent to me in uh, in my daily life. Like I cannot I cannot have a cup of water of tasteless water without being absolutely grateful from hmm. having been 36 days with a uh, water tank filled with, you know, tainted water. And, and what do you do? Sure. And and what did you do? Vinegar. I even tried enemas. <laughs> 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 but uh, what trip was this? And did your water supply actually go bad in the tank? Uh, no, the water that I collected. I'm a bit of a camel when it comes to water. And this journey you're talking about is the Project Little Minks, which is the boat that I got from England to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it was departing Panama. I was setting myself up. So there's a little uh, place there in Balboa, which you, uh, and it's the only place where you can actually dock and fill up your water tanks. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what happened, but the water that from the dock was was somewhat um, I, I really don't know what was wrong with it did it make you sick oh yeah it, make, it makes you want to vomit like almost immediately oh yeah uh, and but there was there was this very pungent taste of tires but <laughs> as if they were burning okay uh, but the catch was before I topped up my water tanks I have my water bottles that I fill up because I get mm-hmm. terribly seasick so I, I, I put my bottles in the cockpit and I avoid like the play going down below for the first three or four days. Okay, I understand that. <laughs> and so I had my bottles filled up, and I'm in the cockpit, <laughs> and, I, and I'm okay without eating for a couple of days as well. I'm, it's not a problem. <laughs> not me. But anyway, but, but this is not my story. Um, go ahead. Yeah, and um, a couple of days go by, and then I, I went down below to uh, fill up my water bottles, and then the first swig of, of water I took, I almost barfed right there in, in, the, in the cockpit. And I'm like, what's going on? And I could have returned and figure out more water, but then I was already. Uh, it's before you get to the Galapagos. It's a bit of hard work if you're in, uh, not at the right time. And I was very, very late in the season. This was in September, 
So you're basically doing a beat all the way up to the Galapagos before you actually get to the uh, to the trade winds. Right. So so my decision was well I can turn around and it'll probably take me another four maybe five days to get back to Balboa, or I can just toughen up and head down to uh, Tahiti, which was the you know the closest port I knew where I could get clear water, and that would be another three or four weeks. Right. So um, I said well I I came this far what can I do. And, you know, it was just like us figuring out uh, the computer stuff. Uh, what, what can we do at this point? Right. So I tried, I tried vinegar. I tried uh, <coughs> some spices. I, and then, you know, because I'm a paraplegic, I have plenty of catheters aboard. Like, well, you know, I could try, right. uh, I could try the anima. I've read plenty of this before. You know, they just put water up their bums and, and then you're good to go. But that, that didn't work too well. So I just, uh, <laughs> so I just, I just made a concoction of vinegar and and spices in that I would put it down and it would stay. And okay, hold on, wait, I'm I'm hitting the pause button. There's there's so much richness in this first ten minutes. I I got to sift through a few things. Okay, I haven't done what you've done. I've been offshore a fair amount. You're telling me, if I'm hearing you correctly, that. You're prone to seasickness, which is fine. I actually know a fair number of sailors who are prone to seasickness, but but so far, I have this right. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, and every time, every time, like yeah. clockwork, you get it. Yeah. So because of this, anyone who's ever been on a boat knows that uh, being in the cockpit of a boat is kind of like being in the front seat of a car for someone who gets car sick. You've got the vision, you've got the horizon, you've got more fresh air, and it's just a much more pleasant place to be. So your version of this is that you literally camp out in the cockpit for the first, say, two or three days, perhaps not ever even going below decks at all to avoid the seasickness that will come from losing the horizon in the air. That's correct. This is the most fascinating thing I've ever heard. Three days worth of water. What kind of boat was this that you were on at that time? A Hans 400. And how much sun protection do you have in the cockpit? Do you have a, a bimney that can stay up when your main is deployed or? On that boat, I did have a, a, a dodger, but um, I'm, I'm against dodgers, bimneys. I'm against everything that makes the boat. Uh, I'm against the, um, I really like to sail mm -hmm. um, efficiently. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I don't, I don't like uh, anything that will increase your um, weather helm. The, <laughs> the, the faster I make the... the Sorry, <laughs> I apologize. That, that laugh was just because I, I'm notoriously bad at taking notes during interviews. <laughs> and there are probably 30 questions tumbling around in my head like rocks in a clothes dryer right now that I'm trying to figure out when I can open the door and pluck one out. This is fantastic. Okay, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you and pause again. So we've got you in the cockpit. Your, your anti will discuss this, Dodgers, Bimini's, and things like that, that that impact perhaps how your boat interacts with the weather, especially if that weather is astern of midships on your boat. I get that. Mm -hmm. um, you will stay in the cockpit two days, three days until you reach a point where you decide, okay, I'm synchronous with the with the motion of the ocean at this point. I think I'm going to be okay if I go below. Do you just reach a point where you go, I can't find any more peanuts to eat. I got to go down and make a sandwich or I'm going to die. Or or what? It, what's what's the demarcation where you go, okay, it's, it's time to go through the companionway and down into the bowels of the boat. I think it, I, I think what you said is right. It's uh, it's hunger. Uh, there's a point that you're like, you know what? It's time to eat. 
and then you go down below and and then you're like oh okay it's not too bad and then you <laughs> make your make your first meal and and then it's all good afterwards and then you're in the rhythm i um you know my friend Ben, perhaps not well, we recently did a delivery. I, I don't like to inject my stories into podcasts, but I think it's relevant. I know, it um, makes it smooth. We recently did a, uh, a delivery of a 44-foot catamaran. I don't have a lot of catamaran sailing experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and this show always has an unfortunate tendency to devolve into catamaran bashing, which is not what I intend to do because I am the biggest live and let live hippie. I don't care what you sail. I really don't. And if you're happy in a catamaran, I'm happy for you. And I hope we can share an anchorage and get along just fine. Usually getting along just fine for me means I'm not close to anybody. And if I'm close to anybody, they probably look derelict like I do. That aside, the motion of that catamaran was so completely different than how a monohull slices through the ocean that my friend Ben, who has many tens of thousands of offshore miles, um, and I, and I've got my own fair number, um, both got as close as we have ever gotten to get. We both dry heaved our first night out of Guatemala on that boat a year or so ago just because the motion was so dramatically different. And my my empathy for people who are inclined to be seasick grew astronomically with that experience because I've almost gotten sick from nerves before, which used to happen every time I went out an inlet literally every time I went out in the ocean, I would just get myself all amped up because I was inexperienced and very worried about doing things wrong. But the seasickness thing um, is is rough. And I, I admire your ability to camp out in the cockpit for that long. I, I've got a comfortable spot in mine, but I couldn't make it several. Hell, I can't go three hours without eating. <laughs> uh, I think it's a trend that probably started in the 80s from, from what I can read is most people want to get on boats because they want to do a, an amazing magical journey perhaps around the world and then they will come to land and they want to find the the farthest mountain from the sea as they can as they can get from and never again actually set set foot on a boat and and do such thing i personally don't mind if they're on a catamaran as long as as long as they're like look this is our catamaran and we're gonna live on it for for as long as the boat lasts or as long as we live or if, if we move a boat i feel that there is um perhaps a bit of a tangent here but oh i'm the king of tangents let it fly <laughs> the people who want to live at sea and continue with the philosophy of living at sea is is kind of disappearing i'm a bit a bit bearish on sailing at the moment because of all the sailing i did in the past decade uh everybody that was sailing around the world uh, are no longer sailing. Mm-hmm. They took to land and they carried on with their lives. And I, everybody does whatever they want with their lives. But um, I'm sad that there are no more people who absolutely become fascinated with the life at sea and, and just continue on living this life unbiased of all of these distractions. Because to be on land for me is, is a huge distraction. I can't think straight. And, and when you're out there in the ocean without internet and... and it, it's when you're really allowed to contemplate who you really are and, and your presence in the universe. There are moments at sea that I, I think create 
a, a, a litany of conditions that cannot be recreated on land. No matter, no matter how minimalistic you are, um, I'd love to claim I am. Meanwhile, I've got a digital recording device, a microphone, a laptop, a phone, and an iPad all in front of me under electric lights. So um, I guess my minimalism is quite a bit of a failure. But yeah, it's it's very true that there are moments on a boat that that can't be recreated. But uh, whether or not you're right about uh, the disappearance of that sort of of sailor, I I don't know. Might might anecdotally be true, uh, but I meet so many young kids out there who are sailing. I think if you were to check in on a thousand young innocent souls that want to wander the earth on a sailboat and and check back ten years later. If three or four or ten out of that thousand are still doing it and have adopted it as a long-term lifestyle, uh, I, I think you'd be lucky. I don't know if that's changed over time or not. There are a lot more people now who start because your access to starting is a lot easier than it used to be. You don't have to learn how to how to use a sextant. Um, navigating is looking at a device that shows you in full color where you are and how much water you're in and what's ahead and who's around you. So I think the starting is easier and perhaps has attracted a, a, an exponentially larger number of people to start, which means more people will fail. Um, whether or not it's true that that bottom line number of people who adopt it as a, a long-term lifestyle, I don't know. So why are you on land? Oh, it was mostly because of the, the COVID thing. Um, uh, I, have to be, I have to be careful with what I say, but... Um, okay. Um, so when in December... Well, that sounds intriguing. Why do you have to be careful? Or you can't tell me why you have to be careful. <laughs> well, it's, uh, if, you, if you've got a good game going, you might as well you know, uh, keep <laughs> it to yourself. I don't, I don't need to brag about anything that I do. Okay. But uh, let's, let's say that... Uh, I'll let it go. Uh, no, no, it's... Uh, uh, well, you know, uh, uh, sailing is... Uh, it's the I saw a meme the other day is sailing is the most expensive way to get anywhere for free mm -hmm. and correct and you know, you have to make some money to to continue on living this life and what what I had been doing for the for the past 10 years or so mm -hmm. is like for instance the the project little minx I went to Europe and I bought her for uh, from from an economist nonetheless and it was right around when uh, Brexit took place and and the guy was very smart and he was like, I need to get rid of this boat because it's just, it's going to be eating me up and I'm not going to get any money for it in mm -hmm. the next year or two. And I need to get rid of it. So I, I bought it for very cheap. And and then I bring it to New Zealand where there are no more uh, uh, boats being uh, manufactured. Sure. Uh, as in production boats. And and I sell it for a, for a slight profit. And, and it's nothing astronomical. It's just enough to maintain uh, the lifestyle. So... From from ten years from ten years ago to now, I, I haven't really, I haven't really uh, uh, banked on. Uh, I haven't really made an improvement in my uh, financial financial life. But it's maintaining my life, and that's 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 the. Uh, I'm I'm not. My focus is not uh, getting ahead in, in finances. Yeah. My 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 focus is getting ahead in philosophy. I am lockstep with you, my friend. All it takes is observing everybody around you. And but it, uh, in the reason why I'm on land, so 
December came along of 2019 and I was reading I'm fairly savvy with the with the news that come around and I um I wasn't I wasn't too happy about the um the what what they were talking about in China and and I figure I had already been waiting for two years to uh, to go back to Europe to buy to buy another boat, but our dollar was way down in the dumps. And for me to buy a boat over there and bring it here, I would I would actually take a loss. So I had been sit- sitting on my hands waiting for it. Mm-hmm. And in December, I started looking for a house to put my money in because I I figured there was going to be some sort of like government problems ahead. And yeah, I bought the house and it's been sitting here for for a year and 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 then i figured this winter well, you know what instead of i got a house just sitting there closed why don't why don't don't uh, become a bit productive with my uh, literary end and and just uh go back on land and spend a comfortable winter in a house with the with the heat you're at your uh your new zealand walden pond house um preparing for the winter that's correct in your home that's correct okay yeah. How what 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 sort of circumstance is your home in? Are you in a suburban neighborhood? Or is it rural? Is it in the mountains? Is it in a town? It's in a valley, and but it's just just outside of town, and it's in a little uh, settlement called uh, Oamaru, and that's how they spell it here. It's uh, I think it's world renowned mm-hmm. for being the capital of uh, the world capital of steampunk. And it's a very quirky. <laughs> it, I'm sorry. It, okay, I was it, not expecting that. Yeah, it's a very quirky little town, and it's a uh, somewhat. Uh, if you've ever been to Bath in England, it's uh, it still has that Roman uh, uh, architecture to it because it's a lot of the buildings are built with uh, limestone. Uh, Omer is a very. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, there's plenty of it around, and I. I it's a little gem hidden in New Zealand because most people don't come here because there's not really a whole lot of uh, exciting attractions in the sense of extreme. <laughs> However, it has a, a majestic little harbor with, and there's no, there are no marinas. It's just uh, swing moorings. And if, uh, if a sailor is sailing up the coast and it's in, in deep trouble and they, they want to find a refuge, this is a perfect little place to, uh, to hide in. Do you currently own a boat? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, uh, the boat's up in... Uh, I spent the whole summer... In the in the in the Bay of Islands, and yeah, no, my life is on the boat. This is this is the first time for me, and I think in over ten years that I came came ashore. I not only have a boat here, but I have a boat in Sweden. <laughs> uh, when I say a boat, uh, I am a bit of a minimalist, and the boat I have here is a twenty-eight footer, and in Sweden as well. It's they're almost like carbon copy of each other. What kind are they? The one in New Zealand is a Davidson twenty-eight, mm-hmm. which is uh, the design. If I have to uh, verbalize it in design form, it's from '73, but it's not an IOR. Uh, the designer was uh, was free to uh, design whatever he wanted, so he made it quite full aft, and she's somewhat full up up forward, so she has plenty of volume inside. It's not as voluminous as the modern boats, but uh, compared to the boats made up until the '90s, it's uh, it's it definitely sticks out for for somebody who wants to live aboard. But that was a New Zealand built boat, wasn't it? That's correct. It was built and designed in New Zealand. The designer was the same designer <laughs> that was part of the uh, the America's Cup in '95, the uh, Black Magic. So he was one okay. of the designers that uh, made uh, Black Magic. So he's fairly renowned in New Zealand. And the one is 
Sweden is okay. just um, a uh, Maxi Phoenix, which is uh, designed by Pell Patterson. Okay. If there are any uh, Swedes uh, listening to this, <laughs> yeah, uh, we got we got people everywhere listening. Okay, listen, I've run long. We're going to cut away for a quick second and take a break. Roger. You're listening to Seabird. We're talking today with John Martins, who's joined us from New Zealand, and we will be right back. Seabird will continue after this short break. Whether it's learning the right way to tie off to a mooring ball or mastering how to eat well, even though you have a just stupidly, ridiculously tiny refrigerator on your boat, theboatgalley.com is where you need to go to learn how to make life on a boat better, easier, more successful, and more comfortable. It makes no difference if you've lived aboard for 10 years or if boating is just a dream for you. Carolyn at the Boat Galley has answers to everything you need to know to learn how to live on a boat or to simply learn how to boat better. What you need to do is this. You need to sign up for her newsletter. I have been on that list since 2013. Go to theboatgalley.com, G-A-L-L-E-Y, theboatgalley.com. Click on subscribe to the newsletter and toss your email address in there. It is free. It is informative. And Carolyn is not going to spam you and is not going to sell your email address. You will be on your way. Every journey has a first step. Take your first step at theboatgalley.com. My interviews tend to go like this. I think I know where they're going, and then they just they they grow a third head and do whatever the fuck they want to, and I'm okay with that. That's why they tend to be interesting. You okay before we come back? You need to get a glass of water or anything? No, no, I'm good. I have a cup of tea here. Ah, that's that's what I just did. It was a bit cold. It was shivery. I just turned the <laughs> the, the electric thing here on. And that's the thing. Not being on the boat, you uh, you know, you don't you don't have to put it. You don't have to put up with it. <laughs> so just... many luxuries. Okay, hang on a second. I'll talk us back in and we'll pick right back up, okay? Okay, that's fine. Fantastic. Welcome back to Seabird. I'm John Hurley. We're talking today with John Martins. Okay, we've covered a lot of stuff. Let's talk through your life on the boat, on a solo passage. Even a, a let, Let's talk about a boring solo passage. Panama to New Zealand, one that you got a bit of press for doing. Um, talk me through a typical day on your boat out at sea when you're on a long passage. Okay. Uh, well, I can spoon feed this to you, too. Do you sleep in the cockpit? Do you sleep below? Do you sleep in big chunks? How often do you wake up when you're offshore and you don't see traffic? Do you set an alarm? Where do you eat? What do you eat? How do you eat? What's your head situation on the boat? What's your electronics situation on the boat? And how do you get through your day? There are two um, epochs in my uh, in my sailing, and that was pre-AIS and post-AIS. Uh, Post-AIS, which I I honestly would not sail without these days. It's uh, you can just go down below, and as as long as the weather is okay, I am quite confident of going down below and sleeping as long as I as I need. Mm -hmm. But but before AIS, it was interesting. At times, I'm, I, I have to go down below and I have to sleep because uh, my, my philosophy when I'm sailing is I must be 100% of the time, all of the time. And I am quite conscious of how much energy I can spend. 
So at any moment that I can rest, I will rest. Sure. As soon as you go down the companionway, I just get some squabs and put it on the floor and I sleep right there. It's the best motion place in the boat anyway. Yeah. So let me, can I jump in there real quick? Yes, please. Um, you are not kidding about that being the best motion place you are you're you're right is, is that the fulcrum you're you're at the center point of pitch roll and yaw in all directions you are going to move the least feel the least and usually if you're on the cabin sole down below at the bottom of the companionway there's not very far to roll which means you're kind of tucked in if you get in there with some blankets and pillows you're you're living like a king. That's correct. And for me also, it's uh, strategic because, well, I'm a paraplegic. So it's uh, if I was going into any of the bunks or any of the uh, cabins, if the boat has one, then I'm adding another um, layer of of difficulties to get to uh, to the cockpit. And mm -hmm. it already takes me a little while to get to the cockpit. So being right there is it's it's very uh, strategic. And let's be honest, if you're a single hander, what else do you really need other than being close to the galley and to a bucket or the loo or whatever um, mm -hmm. is that you used to do your uh, your own thing? But I w I wouldn't say there is a predefined. I'd say a normal day in the in the trade winds. That's probably more consistent. Sure. Is is. I go to sleep around maybe 1 or 2 a.m. and then I sleep until till sunrise and then make myself uh, something hot to drink and and then I stay in the cockpit for a while do some meditation and reading is of course I've I've become very uh, fond of these electronic Kindles and mm -hmm. tablets because it, that saves probably a hundred kilos worth of books on the boat <laughs> oh, i was i was so resistant and then i got a girlfriend and she set foot on my boat and the first words out of her mouth were you have too many fucking books <laughs> and i said how can there be such a thing as too many books and she said well it's kind of limited space maybe you should get a kindle and i said i hate kindle i have a kindle now mm -hmm. so yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know how many books I read between Grenada and Florida on that, that 11, 12-day trip we did because they were just all on the Kindle. I only had to pack one thing. Um, and it doesn't give you the gratification of dog-earing a page. And I always have a few books with me, but you are dead on right. Um, and I know I interrupted your, your quote-unquote typical day, but I just want to harp on one thing you said earlier. When you are offshore when you can get sleep if you think you need it you take it i just think there's absolutely no you don't add it up you don't worry about what the numbers are and if it adds up to eight or ten or four or whatever it may be if the helm is good and life is good and the opportunity to sleep is there and your eyelids are heavy you crash at least that's that's what I do because my god you you need to have your faculties about you when you need them uh, and if you get those calm opportunities to rest up and get ready you better jump on it yeah that's exactly right because I think the longest stretch that I've I've been uh, without sleep at sea it was just over 48 hours and and your mind starts playing tricks on you and oh and, boy yeah 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 and you, you don't want to get to that state if there's a point that i know that i'm pushing this uh my my energy levels i definitely heave to and 
and and go to sleep because it's only going to get worse from that point onwards anyway so you might as well just <laughs> do whatever storm tactic you're doing yep. and and go get um, some shut eye because in skydiving there was a saying like it's not the first mistake that kills you it's the second it all snowballs from there it's one after the other yep did it one time 51 hours uh, I was hallucinating so bad. I thought the compass was a dancer from New Orleans doing a dance <laughs> for me. And I thought the numbers on the compass were letters. And I was trying to figure out what the words meant. It's it's not cool. Um, so back to your day. How, how, how does John Martins feed himself on a long offshore? Oh, very boring. You know, the interesting part is I was often very seaman-like with a bunch of cans of corned beef and and a bit, a bit of rice but uh, every time i go out to sea i i end up a vegetarian on the other end and then interaction with uh with society again makes me eat meat again and and all the other mm-hmm. but um it's very simple it's just basically white rice beans uh, do you take dried beans or canned beans uh, canned beans i don't want to use my water to uh, mm-hmm. uh and it's water and lpg and all the other and besides mm-hmm. if I've had I've had LPG um, systems that failed on me before, so mm-hmm. I know that I can just grab grab a can of beans and and sure. and, and carry along. Yeah. But I I would and of course chocolate terrible thing to bring on the boat, but it, <laughs> <laughs> it, it never it never chocolate's important. Well, it never lasts more than a week, so <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's my own fault. You gotta have something. Do you do you fish when you're underway? Do you troll? Do you drag a line? No, no, not anymore. I quit fishing in 2014, and it was at, right around when I was um, doing the documentary stuff. Okay, and you quit fishing because why? To do the documentary, I uh, I did quite a bit of research, and it's shocking if if anybody listening to this uh, that was that's the part that I would like for them to uh, understand the most is that we as a species we've been absolutely exploiting the resources of the oceans far beyond its uh, capacities for regeneration. Mm -hmm. Even here in New Zealand, there's one major fisheries company here. The government has already fined them three times for trawling in, in marine reserves. I mean, three times they, they've been caught uh, trawling in, in a place where they should. And they just don't care what no. they pay the fine and keep going? Three times in, within two years. And yeah. in 2010, for instance, uh, my boat is based in Tauranga. Mm-hmm. So there's a little island called uh, uh, Tuhua, which is just about 20 miles off that coast. And if you were to sail from there 10 years ago, from Tauranga to Tuhua, you would be guaranteed to have dinner on your plate and probably probably more sure right today you can you can sail 200 miles up the coast and not catch anything everybody's aware that the fish is absolutely disappearing here and and fair enough you go there's a there's a little bit of a a technological advancement because they are now spotting schools with uh, airplanes and helicopters so then they just can guide the uh, the the trawlers to where the the schools are and the catch is done uh, yeah, so it's it's a little bit unfair, and I I just got to a point where I caught a kingfish on a Sunday afternoon. I pulled the bugger out of the water, and I made the mistake of looking him in the eye, and hmm. and I just I just figured out what am I doing? It's like I didn't have any right to uh to be uh taking this little little bugger out of the water, so I put him back in, and that was that's it. <laughs> that was, that was, I must admit, seafood is my favorite food, but um, I just philosophically I can't do it anymore. 
it's uh, not a, not until I know there's abundance in there. And sure, I still love fish, <laughs> even though it's it's been it's been that long. Yeah, what, what what you love, what what sounds good or smells good, or even you know if you remember tastes good, doesn't always jibe with what you think is the good thing to do. Um, but you already confessed when you get back on land for some period of time that you fall back into the meat eating cycle. Yeah? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. I was a uh, pescatarian for years. Yep. Um, so I guess sort of the, the the exact opposite of what you're doing, where the only meat that I ate was seafood because I felt like I was doing something that was doing less ecological damage to the rest of the planet. I don't think there is any clean path. I think eating eating less of it is good. And if if you're living your life in a way where you eat less uh, of land or ocean-based meats, I think you are doing good for the planet. And wherever you are, you can eat just a little less and it'll be even better. That's all I got. That's the end of my philosophy on eating meat. Okay, we've now completely let's uh, hell politics and religion are next. Let's get all the all the uh, all the important points in there. Um, your trip that was from Panama to New Zealand took how long in its entirety? In 2014 was uh, Pelican was the name of the boat. Right. And on Pelican, uh, I left in June mm-hmm. and I arrived in October. And the other one I left in September, and I arrived in Decem- on December 1st. How long apart were those trips? When one of them was in 2014, when was the other? 2017. So three years apart. But uh, there, this is a concept I've always had. I am not... Uh, you have to define what a traveler is. And I personally am not really... Uh, I don't travel. I roam. Because my my life doesn't really change when I go to a new place. It's uh, I still have the same uh, uh, perceptions of existence. It's not a holiday. It's not a. I, I don't sail for pleasure. It's a. Uh, it's my. It's my lifestyle, and it's the same here in New Zealand as it is in Sweden, as it is in the Caribbean. It's the same thing I do on a, on a daily basis. For instance, the the Little Minx project. I I sailed across the Atlantic. I got to St. Martin, where I have plenty of friends and I left the boat there for the uh, for the winter and I came back to New Zealand to spend the summer sailing here and and then I went back to uh, St. Martin pick up picked up the boat and continue on my uh, my journey because um, I, I figured that a winter in St. Martin was going to be a lot of trouble <laughs> and and not good on the and not good on the wallet either so uh yeah <laughs> and yes, that 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 does dictate a few decisions doesn't it yeah and I must be honest that uh, a summer in New Zealand sailing is, uh, is something one should never, uh, never miss out on. It's a, it's a very special place. And I, I, some, I contemplate this with a lot of my friends that uh, uh, we're all yearning for distant shores. But um, at some point, you can, you can look at the famous sailors. They end up, uh, I suppose, Americans, uh, Lynn, Lynn and Larry Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Elva Simon, which is a good friend of mine as well, and Webb Childs, so many, so many uh, big figures are, have uh, made New Zealand their uh, their home base. It's a very, sp- it's a very special place for sailing. I will say that my my boat, Ave Del Mar, um, the gentleman that I bought that boat from, Jamie Bryson, who circumnavigated on that boat with his wife and youngest son over the course of five years thought that there was no place that he went on the planet that surpassed New Zealand uh, experientially for him. 
Um, and there is so much of my boat that came from New Zealand that came back with him um, between standing rigging, my sails are made in New Zealand. There's just so much New Zealand on my boat. Okay, we're up against another real quick break. We've got a lot more to talk about. We're going to try to squeeze it all in. You're listening to Seabird. We're talking today with John Martins. And we're going to go in a new direction when we come back from this break. Hi, this is Megan. A great way to help support Seabird is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to the show and to share an episode with a friend. Every share, every positive comment really helps. Welcome to Bridge Boys. Bridges. My name is Jeremy, and this is my partner in crime, Andreas Papas. That's right. We're here to introduce you to the podcast that takes you on a whirlwind tour of the world's coolest bridges. Yeah, we'll be exploring the history, culture, and engineering that goes into them. So we hope you'll join us on our exploration of all these beautiful bridges. And be sure to subscribe to the Bridge Boys podcast on your favorite podcast player. Yeah, we'll be dropping some new bridge knowledge every Monday starting August 9th. So we'll talk to all of y'all then. Bridges. Welcome back to Seabird. I'm John Hurley talking today with John Martins, who has joined us from Chile, New Zealand. All right, we're going to go in a very different direction now. You ready? Are you, is your seatbelt buckled? Aye, aye. <laughs> I like it. You could, you could crew for me any day, sir. Um, and, and likewise, I would crew for you. Uh, so you, you've, you've mentioned a couple of times in, in passing, and it has very much on purpose for me not been the subject of this podcast. As you mentioned, you're paraplegic. You used to be a skydiver and a skydiver diving instructor that's right filmer, both all of the above i used to do everything in skydiving um okay it, it, it was it was a profession uh that you couldn't really choose if you wanted to make a living off of it you would had to do everything you could to to make ends meet so okay. uh so photography videos i used to teach um uh, first time jumpers uh i used to do tandem jumping i was a parachute rigger I, okay. I, uh, everything, everything that's involved. Uh, I didn't fly airplanes, but that's. But I. <laughs> everything from the jumping part you were involved yeah. with. Yeah. Okay, that's all right. I know a friend who's a pilot, so the three of us we could be brilliant. I'll sit there and just write about it. He'll fly the plane, you jump out. Life's oh, good. I can fix the uh, plane as well. So. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I did that. Yeah. I was a, I was, an, I was a, an apprentice of a, a, a mechanic shop. Yeah. Well, that's that's fabulous. Okay, um, I really want to avoid the temptation to get mired in this, mm -hmm. um, but it begs asking: uh, What can you can you briefly explain to me what happened in skydiving that left you without the use of your legs? Which is not going to take over the podcast because that's not the point of talking to you. It, it wasn't it wasn't anything overly dramatic, but it's uh, if you want to resume, and it was just a a very, a very hard landing. Out of I made almost ten thousand jumps and never broke a fingernail, but one really hard landing um, with a with a big passenger that that just basically went wrong. Yeah, it was everything that could go wrong went wrong on that jump. Okay, and I started jumping in the in the in the late nineties. It was still a bit rough. Today is is much better, safer. There's there's so many rules in place now, and the equipment is so much better. And unfortunately. I did get to watch a lot of friends um, die. Um, so you, you, anyway, you become, um, I, I tell my friends from skydiving that once I made the transition onto sailing, I, I realized that 
how dangerous the sport is actually is because every year you know somebody that dies right if not three or four and in sailing i only know two and this is 15 years of sailing um sure uh, uh it's it's so much safer <laughs> um, <laughs> compared to skydiving but yeah I, i feel very fortunate that i actually didn't die well it was a thought that i had when i was all mangled up on the uh, on the ground it's like well uh-huh Uh, there was a promise that I made to, my, to myself right there. If I if I live through this, I'm uh, I'm gonna go back to my boat and I'm gonna continue on sailing, because uh, sailing was already a huge part of my life. Sure. Um, at that point, I, I think of myself as someone who lives a well-rounded life. You sound to me like someone else who has lived and is living a well-rounded life. I would expect that most people on the planet, I'm not trying to sound corny here, I'm being dead serious, have at some point thought, gee, how would I react if X, Y, or Z happens? I don't think any of us could ever hope to react better and carry on better than how it at least outwardly appears that you have. So so first, uh, I salute you for that, but there's this is leading up to a question. Um, I, I told you in the beginning that, that you shouldn't expect this interview to go anywhere that you might expect it to go because that's just not what I do. I put your name in Google. The first headline that pops up, paraplegic yachty home after spiritual voyage. Um, second headline that pops up, the inspiring story of the first paraplegic yachtsman crossing solo the ocean. Uh, I didn't write that, they did. Are you happy to be recognized? Do you ever get frustrated or, or, or pissed off that the focus is on the wrong thing and that you're someone who's lost use of his legs and maybe therefore your journey is getting attention that it wouldn't have and that it should get attention for things that these people who are writing about you don't even delve into? I wanted to sail. I wanted to have a good time. 2013, I bought a little Beneteau 34 and and then i had the most amazing summer oh sorry uh yeah the end of the summer there uh cruising around the caribbean i stopped in aruba i, I used to work there as a skydiver in uh in 2010 and caught up with a bunch of friends and you you know you know the circuit there in the um in the caribbean and mm -hmm. you're just floating in the ocean uh, where are you going next ah going that way Uh, ah going that way it doesn't matter and then you meet somebody where are you going ah, i'm headed that way ah, i'll just I'll go with you as well. Let's go, uh, <laughs> and in separate boats. But uh, but uh, sure, yeah. Sometimes families, and you just just tag along, and it's a community, and it, and it, it it works that way. So I never intended to uh, get any recognition, any titles, any, and I I don't even know if it's a title. Uh, I I had to get my boat from Panama to New Zealand because all my money was tied up into that Bavaria, mm -hmm. and. If I had sold it, if I got lucky to sell it in Panama, where it was, uh, I would have gotten a, a huge uh, financial loss. And But if I made it back to New Zealand, I would have broken even. So I figured, well, you know, I, I can do this. I can right. <laughs> get this boat back to New Zealand, then I'll get there and I'll sell it and, and I'll go back to Square. Sure. If anything, that was my, I feel proud of myself is of not having gone broke <laughs> <laughs> for anything if if you're trying to become an olympian and the value of it is the recognition of everybody watching you you're setting yourself up to a huge 
um, existential dilemma later in life because you're going to try once and then you're going to try twice and you're never going to be satisfied with it. Sure. There's no end to it. Do you ever feel that you've been burdened by being uh, awarded metaphorically a medal for first paraplegic to sail solo across the Pacific? Um, you didn't ask for the medal. Did they hang it around your neck anyway? And do you care? No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't bother me at all. But uh, it's you have to take into account uh, what what the, what do you want to do with your life? Um, I I feel from observing it, I see a lot of. Uh, creative individuals that once the once publicity gets to them they they stop creating what they were creating and they stop doing what they they wanted to do i i've had producers that approached me and they wanted to make a video uh, movie documentary mm -hmm. that type of style about my story but i um i i i i feel a bit um and don't let my doom and gloom get to you because um <laughs> I, I'm I'm not I'm not very uh, fond of the new generation of when I started sailing, the only concept I could get of what the what the ocean was going to be like was from reading the books, right. and m my imagination would drive me wild, and and the waves that I imagined were way higher than what I actually uh, <laughs> encountered out there. <laughs> so, uh, but now. Um, I had I had a very sad um, event that happened about a month or so ago. Uh, uh, the sister of a friend of mine uh, got in touch with me because she said, like, ah, oh, my, my, my brother told me to get in touch with you because we're about to sail across the Atlantic. And, and then immediately my mind was thinking, all right, you know, she's going to ask about, you know, the normal, the normal shop talk. But no, she wanted to find out about what was the best equipment to uh, do videos and what that. Buddy, there is not enough electricity on the planet for you to listen to me railing on about YouTube channels and fucking drones. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I'm probably a much more cynical person than you are. You're smiling in every picture. I glare a lot, although I'm I'm happy. I'm at peace at the in, on the inside. Those who know me know that's true. Um, this world that we inhabit, this sailing world, um, is full of people who in this social media generation have learned a distorted version of what the life is about. Um, and that's part of what I get from what, from what you were saying. And I, I think it's a, a glaring omission in how we're raising the next generation of sailors. And, and this is exactly, where is the value of sailing? Where do you tie it to? So in this, in this instance, I think it's tied to whatever fame they can get. And, and one, one positive I can see is that whenever they're, uh, they're into some really big seas, at least they're going to be looking at their cameras and not behind them at the waves that are just about to break <laughs> on the, in their cockpit. That's, uh, Okay, I've got one last question for you. Wait, for you, for John Martins, where is the value in sailing? The reason why I started sailing was because uh, my friend Brum, who runs a little um, uh, operation in, um, in uh, Zephyr Hills, Florida. So Brum and I were sitting around a bonfire and we were talking about uh, where skydiving was going to take us. And, and this is some, almost 20 years ago. So I was... I, I wasn't really sure. And then he mentioned, you know, he's, he's Dutch. So he's like, oh, when I was a young boy in Rotterdam, I used to see the, 
the the ships go out to sea and the, the and then i said bram stop right there sailing boats you know we're living life at 200 kilometers an hour uh, 120 miles an hour and 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 you're talking about getting on a boat and doing 10 knots i didn't even know speeds uh, yeah, but, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I remember that night I went to my, um, I lived in a tent then. So I'm sitting in my tent there and I'm thinking, you know what, maybe I was a bit too uh, abrupt on rejecting the sailing idea because I had never been on a boat. And it took a few more months and then I ended up going with my girlfriend to uh, St. Augustine. And then we took a course, like a weekend course there. And it was on a J24. I don't know if you ever mm-hmm. sailed in one. I have not, so but I'm familiar with them. I lived in Annapolis. It's a little racing boat, and the interior is com- oh, yeah. it's completely empty. It's just a, it's just a hull. Yep. And the moment I stepped on that boat and I looked down the companionway, I saw the possibility. I said, because I've, I've done a bit of carpentry work in my, uh, you know, my, my younger years, and I, I just looked inside as I could build a little cot on that side, and then I could build a little burner on the other side <laughs> immediately. Because I was... At that time, I was working between uh, Florida and New Jersey. So I kept um, uh, driving up and down the coast every summer and winter, a little snowbird. So I figured, you know, why, why can't I do this on, on a boat? That would be way more interesting. Yeah, that's where it started. So the sailing is a lifestyle. Is is I have always been a roaming bird. I never really settled anywhere. Uh, New Zealand has been a... Even though it's been my base for the past uh, 14 years, uh, it's where the roads always end up. But um, I probably spent a total of maybe three or four years in total here for the past 15 years. Right. <laughs> I don't see myself doing anything else in my life at the, at the present moment. But because I am in a wheelchair, and, and this is something I knew from, from the get-go, uh, one day I will have to come to land because my shoulders are going to give up. But as long as I, as long as I can, my body can take the beat. Um, I'm going to continue on sailing because it's it's the only it's the only lifestyle at the moment that will allow you to be who you actually are and allow as much freedom that Americans so much value. And and certainly you're not going to find that on land. It's it's impossible. You you cannot be yourself on land not with the influence of governments and and the people around you as well. Society is very uh, very influential in what what you actually are. I believe that uh, it was Mortessier who wrote about being at sea and it being the greatest country yeah. in the world by virtue of its rules and its forms of punishment. Couldn't agree more. Um, my friend, I cannot wait for our paths to cross out there i hope there is a day in the not too distant future when i pull into an anchorage and park my boat as far away from the crowd as i can and that's where you are when that happens i will i will row some whiskey over and we'll tie one on (laughs) now we're talking (laughs) (laughs) thank you for giving me uh and our listeners so much of your time um thank you for all you've done for your honesty and and for for your philosophical bent on sailing it's refreshing keep doing what you're doing and uh hopefully we'll talk again someday it was a pleasure so long john thank you all right bye-bye seabird is made by boat radio It is written and produced by John Herlig and Mike McDowell. Thank you to D Imperfection for our theme song, Welcome to Neverland. And thank you also to Megan Agresto for her perfect voiceover work. We are very grateful.
For everyone here at Seabird, I am Christopher Pruitt saying thanks for listening. It's John again. Next week is the final episode of season one of Seabird, and we are thrilled because Mike McDowell had a chance to sit down and speak with Don McIntyre. Don was born in Adelaide, Australia in 1955 and has been adventuring all his life. He's been awarded a gold medal for a lifetime of adventure by the Australian Geographic Society. He's a sought-after media guest and an expert on Antarctic expeditions. He writes regularly about adventure for magazines and has been on 60 Minutes no less than five times. He's the CEO of the Golden Globe Race, the nonstop solo around-the-world race made famous for its participants, including Bernard Moitessier. With a relentless thirst for adventure, Don represents all things Seabird. I hope you'll join us. It's too much pressure for you. You've got no time to be true. 